Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hello again. Good to have you back for another Sports Pro Podcast Extra. Uh, Owen Connolly here. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Uh, hope you're all very well and looking forward to what we think should be a really interesting edition. How much that's changing now will be changing forever. Well, that's what we've tried to ask this time. We've got something a little bit different for you today, uh, talking to someone who spends a lot of his time talking about the future. Team de Young is the founder of Weston Strategic Foresight. Uh, it's a think tank specializing in future human behavior, societal change and business strategy. He's also a lecturer in social psychology at the University of Utrecht. Now, a couple of years ago, my colleague Michael Long spoke to Timon about the relationship between the digital and the physical in sport. Uh, you'll be able to find that interview on sportspromedia.com. So we got back in touch with him to try and make sense of what kind of lasting change or otherwise we might be able to expect after the COVID-19 pandemic clears. We talk a little bit about human habits, uh, about the lessons of past societal shocks, uh, and about some of the changes that were already on the horizon before all of this, from the impact of digital consumption to the rising influence of Generation Z. As I said, it's a bit different, uh, but hopefully it'll be really enjoyable as well. Before we get started with that, a very quick reminder that we have another virtual event coming up in the Sports Pro Insider Series next Wednesday and Thursday. That's the 10th and 11th of June. Uh, we're going to be looking at OTT and broadcast with sessions on a number of technical and commercial challenges for this moment and the ones to come. We've got speakers confirmed from BT Sport, uh, Eurosport, B and Media Group, La Liga, Eleven Sports and more. Uh, and we're also going to be looking inside the NFL virtual draft. Should be great. So uh, head to sportsproinsiderseries.com to register for free access both to that live event and to every event in the series on demand. Uh, we've got events coming up on women in sport, emerging tech, social media, investment, athletes in business, and leadership. So it'll be well worth your time signing up. Uh, we do also have another podcast later this week looking at some of the success stories that have emerged during the recent shutdown and talking to Scott Tilton at Hook It about a few of the digital lessons of the past couple of months. Next time on the Sports Pro Podcast Extra, we've got some of the team from the sports consultancy looking at the changing relationship between major events and host cities and the impact of recent developments on that. Some other exciting pods coming up as well, so do be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. In the meantime, though, I will leave you with my interview with Timon de Jong. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. Timon de Jong, welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Yes, thank you. Thank you for for coming on. I mean, what you know? First of all, how how are things out there in the Netherlands? How are you? How are you set up at this point? Uh, well, we are in a semi-lockdown uh, phase here in the Netherlands, so schools ha- are slowly opening up. So my two little kids, uh, two days in school. Office is still closed. We are allowed to go outside, but only if we really have to. Uh, we're allowed to commute, but then you know the, the the public transportation only has limited capacity, and you have to wear a face mask. And still, no big events. I think it's from June in in June. Uh, so we're still in May here. In June, the the restaurants will open up a little bit. So we're slowly opening up. Um, but it's been two months of wonderful weather, and uh, so w- what I gather, and there's no second wave of uh, uh, you know the the, the the of the pandemic. So mm. I I think mentally we're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, uh, but we're slowly opening up. So I think the country is in relatively good spirits. Yeah, well let's let's hope that continues on that um, trajectory. That's probably a good opportunity to introduce who you are and and what you do and kind of how that's been affected 
working from home over the past couple of months? Yes. So my name is Timon de Jong, live, work in Amsterdam, 42 years old. I'm a social psychologist and I run a think tank called Weston and it's a strategic foresight think tank. And we're specialized in the future of human behavior. So uh, we look at how the world is changing, how behavior is changing and uh, we are trying to predict, and I'm using air quotes here, how people will behave the coming three to five to ten years and the implications it will have on uh, organizations, business, leadership. And uh, normally I travel the world uh, doing keynotes, leadership training, workshops, so many live events. And of course, that all has stopped. And I also lecture at Utrecht University. Uh, but that's also all digital now. Uh, so so I'm, I'm stuck here at home in the attic. <laughs> I've created a home office and, and Zooming and, and Skyping and FaceTiming, etc. cetera, uh, away for the past two months. Yeah. Just out of interest, what's the effect on the academic community been of, of having those physical interactions removed? Um, so I'm, I'm merely a lecturer. So, uh, I come in and lecture to students. Uh, so I'm not a research in, in the sense of a professor doing a lot of research, uh, at the faculty. So, uh, it's moved, it's moved to, you know, digital means and, uh, the university where I lecture, Utrecht University, there were some beginnings of, digital classrooms but that was in essence that if you did a lecture it was recorded and then students who didn't come in for the live lecture could then review it later uh on their digital device so it's actually just a recorded lecture um but what we see now and that's across the whole academic world it's actually fast forwarding uh, uh lecturing digitally, contacting students digitally, uh, and trying to recreate that live experience because it's it's quite different lecturing to uh, 120 students in real than doing that uh, via Zoom, for example. And mm. if you have a small group, like a work group of 10 students, and you have to present to each other uh, your latest findings or you know discussing a paper, it, it, it's it's quite different. Uh, and I think maybe not from a lecturer teacher to student perspective, more the students among each other. I think that is so from my experience, what I see that is for them, it might be even more of a challenge than it is for me as a 42 year old. Yeah. I mean, just to give everyone listening a bit of context into how um, we came into contact with you initially. I mean, you spoke uh, it's just over a couple of years ago. Now you spoke with um my colleague Michael Long uh, yes. about basically the interaction between the digital and the physical world and the you know generational shift in processing that the effect on human behavior of digital distraction and all of these type of things and obviously in in the sports industry which is on the one hand a live experience industry and you know whether that's as a participant or as a spectator and on the other hand a content industry that has the same kind of imperative to produce as much stuff as possible to keep people involved uh, and interested you know that that creates a a quite broad set of dynamics yes and the interesting thing there's a parallel between uh so what what the, for the past few years when i did i was lecturing at the utrecht university it was recorded but then when the recording was there you also saw and heard some of the shoots yes you saw me and then my blackboard and my slides etc but the students were there interacting with me and that was the recording then the students got at home but now if you lecture it's just you uh and there's no live audience there and I think that is also, you know, a parallel to sport. Uh, in Germany now, the the Bundesliga has started again, but there's not a, you know, there's the, the, the stadiums are empty. So now you're watching the same football game, and maybe you never went to a stadium, but our experience of live sports is that there were always an audience there. And I think if you watch it now, and I've, you know, I just watched, you know, I didn't watch a full game, uh, but I, I took a look at what it looked like. Um, 
it is strange to watch a live event or a big sports event and there are no spectators there because the, mm. those spectators connect us to actually what is happening. The same for my students, that it's weird listening to a lecturer or a professor uh, seeing a lecturing hall and there's no one there or then looking at someone's attic <laughs> because that's where we're stuck right now. But there are uh, uh, some uh, lecturers and professors who actually take the stage in an empty uh, lecturing hall. I, I suppose one of the things that that does in the context of the conversation that we're going to have, which is about you know uh, planning for the future, um, is it sets a it gives us a moment that we are in. We don't expect that what we're going to see in the next six months in the sports industry, for example, or in academia or in uh, a, a lot of other kind of sectors which involve uh, a lot of physical contact but that you can strip a layer away from that's only going to be temporary hopefully when and and hopefully sooner rather than later when we are able to uh, wind down with social distancing measures we'll start seeing lecture halls that are full and people having conversations with each other in them and we'll start seeing sports stadiums that are full um, so we, we we have a moment in time here, basically, where behavior is going to be different. And yeah, what we're I, trying I, to... I fully agree. So I, I, I very much disagree with the term the new normal. Uh, I, I think that is that that's just I think politicians or leaders, they shouldn't use that term. They should use this. This is the temporary abnormal. Mm. This is the temporary abnormal because there will be um, a vaccine or a medicine is it not you know early next year then it's late next year or maybe 2022 but there will be <laughs> we'll get this somehow under control or fully fully solve this problem and then we'll go back to normal mm. as we always have throughout history yeah yeah and i think that that's that's one of the things that's interesting to watch a society process a moment in time that it's never you know it's conscious of these things having happened in the past, but because something like this has never happened in living memory, the the experience of it is so different from the theory of it, which can be, you know, quite uh, quite dispassionately talked about, I guess. Um, yeah, and especially this part of the world, if we look at, you know, Europe and Western Europe, what, what have we been experiencing the past, well, since World War II? Uh, so it's not just a pandemic; it's also, you know, a time of <laughs> a time of crisis. Mm. Uh, what have we seen? Um, and maybe some other parts of the world are more used to setbacks and crises, and 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 therefore maybe you know different approach, different mindset than when it comes to this this COVID nineteen corona pandemic. Mm. So where does an event like this fit into the work that you do in terms of un- understanding and? Uh, and mapping out human behavior on a, on a kind of so, a societal level because well, you have you know we, we've been talking about change in how society works and economies work and particularly uh, in how communications and, and personal interaction work because of, of the digital revolution over the last 20 years or so um so you have an event like this which a lot of people are positing as kind of an accelerant um, you know, saying it will bring certain changes around much quicker. Um, but do, do you, when you're doing your work normally, would you have factored in something like this happening? No, this is uh, <laughs> a black swan. I, I very much think this is a black swan event. I think you could factor in uh, a pandemic, but if we look at the pandemics that we have seen for the past few decades, like the SARS, for example, it has always been a local, semi-local. We haven't seen a global pandemic like this for, I think it was a hundred years. The Spanish flu was the last global, truly global one. Um, and then it, that it spread so fast because we're so globalized, we travel so much. Um, so, I think this was very much a black swan event. But then in a crisis, whether it's a pandemic or a war or an economic crisis, or there could be an earthquake, uh, you see people responding in similar ways. Because uh, there have been times in the past where you know, there's a crisis, the future is uncertain. Um, and, and how do groups of people then respond? And that is 
you know, from a research perspective, very exciting. Uh, and it, of course, depends on where you are, what country you're in, uh, the, the age you have, socioeconomic background, your your situation, if you're in a steady job or not, if you're in a relationship or if you're single living on your side. They're very, of course, there's not one big group, uh, many different groups responding in different way. And that is just so f- from a research perspective, these are wonderful times. Purely from a research perspective, we feel like we've got to we've got to stress there. Uh, yes, uh, of course, there are people, uh, and this is interesting because you mentioned uh, many people say these are times for for change, right? So this is this is a great opportunity to accelerate some things that we were hoping for. For example, a greener planet. Um, sustainability for example but that that very much that change what kind of change you would like to see very much depend that depends on who you are because there are other people uh, let's say people who are for example nationalists they say oh this is wonderful uh, finally this is the end of the over globalization uh, we're finally going to reshore some of our production close our borders uh, take care of our own so these are wonderful times um, and then we have the tech people, the the oh, Silicon Valley, for example. Oh, this is great. Now we're finally going digital because, yes, uh, we have been quite digital the past decade, but still, uh, we're still kind of stuck. We were still kind of stuck in the, the 20th century. And now we're finally going to get that digital revolution that we've been talking about for decades. We finally, uh, that's finally going to materialize. And the interesting thing is that, uh, and we call this desired futures, uh, many people project their desired future on the post-corona times. Mm. So many people expect to change. Uh, most of us agree, yes, th- things are going to change. But then if you ask, so what do you think will change? Then most people project their desired future there. Uh, so I don't know this, I, if I would ask you, to, what, what will you think? So let's say we get a vaccine uh, in a year's time, so spring 2021. What do you think will be different? See, that's why I asked the questions. Um, <laughs> but you must have had this conversation <laughs> at the kitchen table. So, ooh, this will change things or at the office. Yeah, it's, I mean, I completely, I can I can definitely, um, and I'm just avoiding your question in a slightly different way here. But well, that's fine. That's I, can, fine. <laughs> I can definitely recognize what you're talking about with, with these desired futures and and certainly projections of um, projections that predate the current moment and, and seeing it as, a, as an accelerant or, or a, um, seeing it as, as stimulating that change rather than doing something unexpected. Yes. Um, you know, uh, there's a, I, I see political journalists share this comment on occasion, which is this thing proves the thing that I believed all along. Ah, yeah, there you go. There's a desired future. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what what's interesting is just how, you know, the, the thought process that goes into, um, and, and I guess one answer is that it, we're still living through it. So we don't really know, but the thought process that goes into assessing a moment like this, yes. um, do you go back to history? Do you look at pandemics in 1918 or other moments that have caused society to have to close itself down? Or how do you, do you set it to one side and, and look at, look yeah. at data that existed beforehand? Yeah. So uh, in the world of sociology, social psychology, of course, we love to look throughout history. Are there, you know, what, what similar uh, crisis situations did we have? How did people respond? And uh, so if people, for example, would love that the world is now going to change in many great ways, depending on your desired future, is there proof of that in history? And then unfortunately, there's actually a little proof. Uh, if we look at crisis situations in the 20th century, the, the only real crisis that experts can agree upon that has actually fundamentally changed society, the economy, politics, uh, behavior is World War II. Uh, That was the true, well, it's of course, it's a world war. Uh, That was the, 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 that had, that was such a huge, huge, huge crisis uncomparable to, of course, where we're in uh, now, that it actually changed uh, society, economy, politics, behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But if we look at the other, you know, the economic crises that we've seen, the the, the pandemics, because there have been a few, even uh, the Spanish flu, which killed millions uh, around a century ago, it, 
it didn't change behavior. Um, we, we bounce back to normal. And many historians actually agree is, well, if we get a vaccine next year, uh, we're going to bounce back to normal within six, nine months, a year, quite fast. We just have to restart everything again. Uh, behavioral scientists say it takes 66 days to change a habit. I don't know if you've heard of these 66 days. Uh, and some people say, well, it only takes 66 days. So we're now in this uh, lockdown, semi-lockdown pandemic for six days. So now habits will have changed. And that's, of course, true. But then if the vaccine is here, it will only take 66 days to go back to where we were. Um, mm. So, yes, things are different now, but they can easily go back to, to normal or the way we're used to uh, with the same speed. Yeah, there's something interesting, you know, just talking about that and something that I've noticed is we've had our lockdown measures have shifted a bit subtly in the in the last uh, two, three weeks. So it's easier now to go out for a walk. If you like me, you live at home with somebody else. It's easier to go for a walk on your own because you know that that's not the only time you're going to be out of the house. And I've noticed that my behavior when I'm on my own is more easily prone to drifting back to how it was before mm. so when i take away the context of oh i am out walking with my wife because this is the only person who i see now yeah um and this is our daily walk out of lockdown then i'm more likely to be looking at my phone or kind of not quite being as aware of other people around me and only realizing later that actually i should step aside or whatever um so i, I yeah i find that and does it if you, does... if you extrapolate that to kind of a social level once people are allowed back into crowds in football stadiums, perhaps they it becomes easier to think back to how you were before. It's the first day back at school kind of thing. Yes, and I think, uh, for example, if people wear a, a mask, if people all around you wear masks, then you're you know you're constantly visually reminded. Oh yes, oh wait, be careful, social distancing, etc. But if no one's wearing a mask, if there are no signs around, there's no duct tape on the floor. Uh, then we're just exactly what you say. Your mind drifts off. You're, you're, we're hardwired by the fact that we've been on this planet for a few decades, us personally. Uh, and then throughout history and evolution, we're hardwired to just, you know, uh, touch each other, walk up to, you know, to interact. Not in, We're not hired, hardwired for social distancing. That is not in our DNA. Uh, so if you want to enforce that, you have to constantly... Uh, be reminded of that and actually forced and you have to use the word force here forced to do that because if you don't then you just bounce back to normal behavior and you see this people just shake hands touch it out go oh oh, oh sorry I was, I was just i was not i was not thinking because if we switch off that that crisis thinking mode we immediately start touching our loved ones and our friends and our uh, neighbors and colleagues mm. etc so when we're when we're thinking about the changes that might come after this um, in in the medium term, one of the ones that are going to stick, if we look back at, at where society has changed over the last, let's, let's take somewhere where it's in a recognizable form over the last 50 years. You know, if you think about something like wearing a seatbelt or something maybe more and into this kind of conversation, something like the way a crowd behaves at a football stadium and the way that might have changed since, say, the 1980s. Um, how, what kind of conditioning does it take for, for that type of thing to, to happen? Well, if we think, for example, of football, there's not... Uh, so they're just closed. So there's not an in-between... Uh, thing we can have experiments with now. Uh, there's not a Tour de France yet without any spectators. Um, so I, I think what will change is, well, very simple. Uh, working from home will be more accepted. So corporate culture has still been, although it might be your HR policy might be working from home is, uh, you know, we, we encourage that. Still corporate culture in many many countries, cultures, uh, industries were still frowned upon. And I think <laughs> it's not going to be a 50-50, but probably four days at the office, one day working from home. And that will be more socially accepted after this crisis. But not a 50-50 or a one day at the office, four days at home, like a complete revolution, but just a tiny shift that way. 
Um, also e-health, e-health. So let's say uh, I have a, a mark, uh, like a, a itchy spot on my arm. And I would normally physically go to my house doctor. And now uh, I will say, oh, can we connect via Skype? Can you have a look? He'll ask me two or three questions. And if he says, well, I really like to see you, then I physically step into uh, a doctor's office. These little things, I, I'm quite sure things already, and that's that's very important thing, uh, things that were already happening, this is just the, the, the last push they needed to finally be socially acceptable. But radical, radical changes, I, I don't see that happening uh with the severity of the of the crisis, because it's not severe enough and probably not long enough for for <laughs> our whole society to be paradigm shifted upside down. Yeah. So let's let's look at a couple of things because you know one one thing that's going to be of a lot of interest to if you're if you're running a sporting event, there's a lot of polling around at the moment about how ready people would be to go back under a given set of conditions. Obviously, it's not going to happen in the next few months in most places. Um, but would you hypothetically in March, 2021 be willing to go back if there was no vaccine, but there was, you know, not many cases, that kind of thing is, is around and it gets still fairly mixed results at the moment, which I think is, is natural because it's, you're, you're putting a lot of stress on the, the hypothetical there. Um, but thinking about something that you could change about the experience, you know, Security checks now are more of a, um, when you go to any public place, but when you go to a sports stadium, you kind of accommodate the idea that someone is going to check a bag. If I have one, someone might pat me down on the way in, or I might have to walk through a metal detector. Um, would people be as accommodating now, do you think of public health measures, temperature checks, that kind of thing? Yeah. Or would that be something that eventually people would say, I'd kind of like to, to go back to how things were? Uh, no, a health check is fine as long as you don't have to undress and 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 you know all kinds of well crazy things. But if it's just a health check or one of these these you know I, the digital uh, how do you say the thing is thermometer? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm. The forehead things, things like that. Maybe you will have an an a wrist wristwatch on you know which has your body temperature or your medical history of the past few days not your full medical history but at least you know how you've been fit so there might be little things people love their sports to be they'll shrug their shoulders oh that's fine i have nothing to hide i'm fine i just want to be at the the football stadium um what we know from privacy research yes there's a minority of people in most countries it's around 15 percent one five percent that's very aware of privacy concern not sharing data uh, and they might now say, no, if, if, if they're going to check my health and if that will be stored digitally on my digital fan membership thing that, you know, the, the, the club or maybe even the country depends, of course, who's enforcing it. Um, I won't go to a stadium, but the vast majority will be totally fine with it as long as they can. Mm go and see and experience a live match again. Um, but there, of course, is an in-between step. And I, I think we might go to... Uh, so the Bundesliga is playing now for empty stadiums. Uh, I, I think uh, what could be an in-between step starting already today is that you say, all right, we're going to have local get-togethers watching football on a big screen with great sound um, and just have a hundred people together locally. If I then get ill, then at least, or if this group of people, if someone has the coronavirus, then at least it's a hundred people in the local community. And it's not 50,000 people from a whole region who are, uh, you know, and there might be a super spreader there. I think we'll see more of a best of both worlds scenario where you bring a digital experience to a smaller live crowd. And I would love to see experiments of that. Same goes for my industry mm. where I do a lot of keynote speaking. I'd say, I, you know, there might be a small physical event with only 30 people uh, in the room where I'm speaking, but then I could have, there would be hubs. So people won't be tuning in uh, in their attic behind their laptop. No, they would tune in uh, locally. So you're in London, for example. So locally you have a, a meetup in London with 20 or 30 people. 
they would get together and have that live experience, a chat, a drink, a beer, a laugh, that energy of people around you, but then connect digitally. And I think that is a thing that you know, sport organizers should start thinking about today before we think of a full 50,000 people stadium with all these, these um, well, drastic measures. Because no one, no one wants fifty thousand people to be contaminated, and you know, because that would probably shut down the whole league or all that could shut a whole country down again. So, yeah, yeah. But what I'm, what I'm still kind of interested in is, is, as far as that conversation goes, is you know, is it going to be possible to identify in advance the changes that will stick? So the changes that people will continue to, you know, the the things that people will adopt when the option to go back to normal potentially or whatever version of normal um, we have in a couple of years uh, once that's available yes and no so it's just so this is very it's very easy it's very basic as long as it's very comparable to the way it used to be then it's fine so take for example the the discussions people have about handshakes are we going to shake hands after Corona? Because we know hands, you know, the virus sticks on your hands. So, but the fact is people want in a, when you meet each other, you want a, want to make a physical connection. But if it's a handshake, a fist bump, a hug, a, a foot hug, some, so, um, Yes, we want to touch each other to make a connection, step a little bit closer than you would normally would to say hello, and then you take another step back, and then we've we've touched each other, we've made a little connection. That physical touching of each other is very important. But if it's a handshake, a fist bump, etc., etc., so thinking of things that will change, uh, yes, this could be something different. Yes, you can change the handshake. We can think of something different, but it, there has to be something uh, in its place. So we cannot say no handshake anymore. That's not going to happen. But if you can replace it with something that's similar, we can. Mm. So if you want to see a change which is completely different than the way it was before, that is just not going to happen. And that is, the historians say that these, these utopian dreams that some people have when they think of their desired future after Corona, it's not going to happen. It has to be very logical because if I explain a thing like the handshake, you go, yeah, but that's not that spectacular. No, but then it's probably going to happen. Uh, if it's very spectacular, it's very out of the boxes, out of the boxes, paradigm shifting-ish. Chances are that it will happen are very slim. Mm. It's it's a bit boring. Eh? It's a bit. I I, I, I <laughs> well, wish it, there yeah. are experts out there say everything will be different. It's going to be brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's wonderful. It's it's great. They make headlines, but it, you know. <sighs> that's that's why I'm not on CNN right now, um, <laughs> <laughs> screaming utopia or dystopia. You have those as well, uh, yeah. saying the world will be a different place. That is that is just not throughout history what we have seen, unfortunately. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like, and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with a hashtag #SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice? And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. So let's take it back uh, a few steps and think about what we would be saying if we had this conversation um, in January or November last year or what, wherever we feel safe saying that we didn't know anything about this. Uh, at all and and think about what some of the trends were um, for an industry like sport in particular but more generally for the way that you know people were congregating around things and and um, enjoying live events and watching content and, and all that type of stuff what would what would some of the things have been if you were coming on this podcast at that point that you would have been most keen to talk about um well, that, that's a that's a great question. Well, I think, uh, and that's also a thing for post-corona, but also a thing that I've talked a lot about before is is a so-called digital balance. So the 2010s have been all about digital, social media, uh, everyone with their own device, uh, virtual reality slowly coming. Uh, and how do you combine the best of the digital and the virtual? Uh, and the interesting thing is that the live events and the live venues, the challenge is always how can we enhance this with 
digitally? How can we, so we have a match? How can we start this digitally days, weeks before? And how can we keep that attention for weeks, months after? Uh, and then the digital uh, players are all about, all right, so we have esports here, for example. How can we give that that life component? Because this is digital. This is a screen. Um, and I think that balance between the digital and the physical, uh, it, it, there's not a one-size-fits-all uh, answer here. Otherwise, you would have known it already. So it depends what 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 exact industry you're in and what 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 you would like. Uh, but I think what most people feel right now, when we're uh, more than two months in this Corona pandemic, is that the balance is completely off. Uh, if we look at mental health research from the last few weeks, people just getting stressed, anxious, insecure, uh, feel disconnected because we're behind the screen all the time. We don't see people en- enough. We, yeah, we might speak to them via uh, Zoom and Skype, call them on the phone, uh, but we, we miss physical contact and not just with our loved ones, but also with these 50,000 strangers in a football stadium. These shared experience where you're at a live event, that is, well, maybe not, uh, we're not high wide for the 50,000, but at least a few hundred, a few thousand, that is what we're used to. And and um, a, a digital, nothing digital can replicate that. What kind of effect is, does an event like this have on on that conversation then? Because, you know, is it, it is this almost an experiment in stripping everything down and saying, okay, all we can do is the digital stuff or aside from a few essential activities, all we can do is the digital stuff and then you piece it back up and, and will we come to a slightly different understanding um, of, of what all that means once we get to the other side? Well, right now there's just too much digital. So I, I, I'm glad this is a podcast and not a video feed because I spent, <laughs> and I, I, I presume you as well, too much time behind the screen. Uh, because we have our smartphones and we spend too much time on them. At night, we're watching Netflix. We might have a Zoom with our parents or grandparents. There's just too many screens. There's too much screen time. So people crave a real experience with real people. Um, and I think depending on the country, and now you're allowed to gather with two or three people, or and, you know, next month it might be 10, and then it might be 100. So uh, we see these opening up of societies play out so there are scenarios there so depending uh, on exactly what your business is if you are an amateur sports league or if you are you know the bundesliga in germany i would immediately start catering to if it's only three people allowed what can we do to make an experience for three people at home if 10 people are allowed in uh, in a park what can we do that these 10 people have a real physical experience and you might have a digital uh, device there to bring those 10 people actually physically together so digital goes well but i would now see digital as a tool to bring people together in 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 what is allowed and also, there might be a second wave in this pandemic, and we might see, because that is what all the experts say, there might be a second wave, and we might see stricter measures. So we're now opening up, everything's positive, light at the end of the tunnel, but then maybe September or October comes, we've opened up a bit too much, there are planes going again, and boom, there's a new outbreak, and then, you know, all the scenarios are there, oh, we're going to close this off again, we're going to close this border, and what happens then to our uh, mental well-being? Do you have something for that as well uh, on the shelf? Or are you then, again, completely surprised again? So I, I think you should have a, a scenario planning. I would have something for that as well if we yeah. bounce back. Yeah. The other thing that, that you guys were looking at exploring at, at Weston at the start of the year was generational change and, and particularly the, the move to thinking more about Gen Z uh, people in their, you know, teens and early twenties, and less about millennials, um, who are now a bit longer in the tooth, like me. First of all, just what what had your thinking been about that? Because I think it is relevant as well to that conversation about the the physical and digital balance. These, it's a generation who, like the generation before them and the generation before them, are just a bit more used to remote communication and remote experiences. Um, but it's obviously there are other layers that that come on top of that as well. Yes. Um, so what what kind of 
perspective did you think that that generation was going to be bringing to the world before you had this kind of system shock um, in, the, in the later months of this year? When it comes to, to the digital and, and technology or just in general? Just in general, really, mm. when it comes to the, the direction that they might have started to take society into. Um, <laughs> this could be another hour. Let me see what I can, <laughs> I can, uh, I can pick out. Well, I saw a nice uh, quote from a, a youngster uh, on Twitter and I have two, uh, so my company, I have two Gen Z, or they're not employees, but they work with me, a 20 and a 21 year old. One of them came to me with this tweet, which said, um, so this was by uh, someone in their early 20s, so on the brink, Gen Z millennials. Um, and this tweet read, uh, the way baby boomers are feeling about the Corona crisis is the way we have been feeling about global warming for years. Mm. So the way the world is now worried about this corona pandemic, we've been feeling about global warming for years. This this panic, this insecurity, this there's no light at the end of the tunnel. What will this do to our future? Um, and the interesting thing with um, uh, the millennials still being quite optimistic about climate change and we can fix this and and uh quite actually positive uh we see gen z actually being um we sometimes call it in in presentation we call it a raw attitude towards global warming but also diversity um uh, like the challenges the world is facing um and this is actually so these are the teenagers that last year and it feels like a decade ago uh, who actually were street protesting again. Mm. Uh, and I, you are a millennial, if I may share that with the... <laughs> with the yeah, no, I just, so, I just have, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the millennial generation were not a generation that we haven't seen street protests for a long time. Uh, and many commenters said for years, so youth are not going to take to the streets anymore. They're clicktivists. So activists by clicking. So they're just going to click something online or share something. And that is their form of activism. And what we see now with Gen Z is actually they'll take to the streets and actually protest. So it's a more activist, more uh, politically aware, more aware of what's happening in the world. And, and uh, actually a more angry generation than the than the millennial generation yeah so demanding a change i mean um, what what do you think's behind that i mean we'll talk about the implications that that has for you know an industry like sport that communicates with people in uh on mass but what what do you think is behind that uh it's it's behind that seeing the generations above you talk about issues but not doing anything mm. so uh, and I also I'm 42, so I'm 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 a an, an, an young Gen Xer, as they say. So uh, we have thought with when we're talking about it, when we're addressing the issue, when we are, uh, uh, let's say it's transparent. We were all about transparency. Everything should be transparent, you know. And now with the internet, we can put everything on there, and you cannot hide anymore. And uh, we're going to share all the information in social media, so we'll just put it out there, and then. In that way, problems will be solved. The scandals, you cannot hide it anymore. Um, but now what, what we see, even if it's out there, it doesn't mean that the world is changing, uh, that we get more good in and more bad out or not fast enough. Uh, and I think that is what the um, uh, Gen Z, the, this generation is actually rebelling against. Mm. Um, and to give a sports example, uh, so Two years ago, uh, or one one and a half years ago, Nike United States used uh, Colin uh, Kaepernick, the American football player. Uh, do you remember Nike used him yeah. for his uh, for their ad campaign? Uh, I'm trying to remember the tagline they used. Um, I think it was the "Just Do It" campaign. It was like a um, uh, it was a, a, a an anniversary of that yeah, having come out, and it was something like you have to be willing. 
to stand for something, you have to be willing to lose everything. Yes. Now, the interesting thing is, so uh, the first response was the Donald Trumps of this world, the conservatives were all over Nike and, and people on YouTube were burning their Nike collections and the stock fell and sales dropped. But then it got a momentum on social media and uh, it got record likes on social media, the Instagrams of this world. And it was a sales boost for that time of the year. I think it was September one and a half years ago. Um, so we all have seen that. But uh, the uh, CEO of Nike United States was then in October, November, interviewed about this campaign. Um, and he was asked, so did you know this would happen? So, you know, first drop and then the boost and said, yes, we knew because we researched our target group. And uh, then he was asked about the target group for this ad. And he said they were teenagers. This target group was not for the uh, 30-year-old, 40-year-old uh, male that you might think is buying. No, this was for the next generation of athletes. This was for teenagers. And I thought it was very interesting that he specifically mentioned afterwards it was uh, a campaign targeted at Gen Z. Mm. And it actually, it, 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 you know, Gen Z loved this campaign. And a lot of people might have said, oh, it's just, you know, uh, greenwashing. And then, but then, you know, for diversity and, and, and race, it's just Nike <laughs> uh, picking yeah, image, a trend. Yeah, image, image build, laundering. I, image laundering. Thank you. Image laundering. And, and we're very skeptical about that. But then the target audience, teenage, loved Nike for sticking, sticking their head out uh, and doing that. Yeah. So uh, I guess I'm conscious now we don't have very much time left, so I'm just going to kind of wrap up. But I guess one of the things that this crisis could could be when you look at Gen Z is it could be a watershed. It could be the moment. I mean, you you know, th- this is a generation that's coming into the workplace anyway. Yes. But we've spent a few months now and probably will spend a few months more living on their terms a bit in terms of communication uh, and social interaction, living in environments that they navigate a bit more skillfully because they, you know, they grew up with them, and perhaps with a slightly different perspective on how you deal with crises. Um, and maybe, particularly in the West, people had got a bit complacent about dealing with major social issues. So, well, does, it, it, does this become the moment now that they become a more powerful force in in mainstream culture and and? by extension in, in mainstream industries like, like sport? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, because they're still, they're, they're too young. They're too young. They're not the decision makers yet. And uh, yes, it's a very entrepreneurial generation. You can actually measure entrepreneurialism uh, as, a, as a trait. Uh, and the Gen Z is the, 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 Harvard did a wonderful piece on this. Uh, Gen Z is the most entrepreneurial generation uh, up to date, but they're still too young. So they're still the 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 oldest ones are still 22 years old. Uh, so for generation to to make a change, uh, yes, they were on their way with climate change uh, and everything they did and the Greta Thunbergs last year. But now that has been somehow put on hold, all the decision making around it. And people say, well, look at all the, you know, the CO2 emissions. And now you have what you want, thanks to this crisis. Look at the clean sky and the clean water, etc. So now you have what you want. So stop complaining and go back to your PlayStation. Um, so I think they're a bit too young. I, I, I Give it a few more years and we might see the effects of this. Um, and and I, want, I want to uh, emphasize one thing with Gen Z is that when we look at their device usage, is that they're quite a bit smarter in using this than uh, the millennial generation. Uh, so uh, your generation, Owen, <laughs> I always <laughs> say pity the millennials because you have been the guinea pigs of uh, the smartphone and you know social media as we know it. We just threw the smartphone and the Facebooks and every we just threw it at this generation. Parents had no clue. Legislators had no clue. It was a free-for-all, do what you want, uh, start everything, and, and we're going to fix everything you know, once we figure it out. And what we see now, now that we've had smartphones for little over a decade now finally there's research and we're still at the beginning of this 
parents finally have figured out, oh, this is how much screen time is a wise thing. This is how we should educate education. This is how we should educate our youngsters. Uh, the university, we, we think, okay, so this is what laptops should do uh, in a lecturing hall, yes or no. But that has taken 10, 15 years. Uh, and I think that's why many people in their 20s and 30s are a bit lost when it comes to device usage. And it's actually the Gen Z that's, more privacy aware, more aware of their digital vulnerabilities, smarter in using uh, uh, social media and sharing things and, and, and also not sharing things. Um, and I think this crisis, because uh, we saw the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, uh, that's when uh, Uber was founded, Airbnb was founded, Pinterest was founded. Some of these billionaire or billion dollar companies were founded. And I think a few Gen Z members might found uh, like the Airbnb of the future. But Airbnb wasn't immediately big in 2008. That took five or six years before uh, we mm. all knew this was uh, uh, quite a revolution. So I th I think there might be some Gen Z members or, you know, early 20s, like the Mark Zuckerbergs, you know, Gen Z, starting things, changing things. But it probably take five or six years before we see, hey, this is going to change an industry, I, I maybe not the world, but it's going to change a few things. So yeah. the seed is planted right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, just to finish us off, I mean, you know, you, you, you said at the start that you, you know, your business is basically looking at the future in three, five, 10 year yes. intervals. Has this crisis changed any of the ways that you think about things or is it, has it confirmed things? Has it challenged things or is it, is it just a case that certain things are going to get here a bit quicker and certain um, things a bit slower? Well, so very personally, so this is my first Black Swan event. I think 9-11 was the previous one and I was still, you know, finishing university. So, you know, I was not working yet. And the economic crisis of 2007-8, you know, we saw some of that coming because we know there will be an economic crisis, you know, every decade. Well, every few years, every decade, every 20 years. So, um, so from again, from a research perspective, a Black Swan event like this is 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 exciting. From a research perspective, from a societal perspective, I think it's awful uh, because the economic crisis will be very severe. Uh, but for me, uh, I've never focused much on Black Swan events because it's a Black Swan event, and if you spend a lot of time, because there are many <laughs> Black Swans that can happen. Uh, if you if if you would make a scenario for every black swan that is possible and you know the correct definition is that you cannot predict a black swan and therefore it is a black swan it takes up so much time and energy and black swans are often you know with a negative connotation um and i always like to focus on the positive but i do think making a long wrapping up a, a, a too long of an answer uh that i will pay more attention in my research uh, and also in the presentation leadership and exercise to, to also give a bit more attention in Black Swan to Black Swan events. Okay. Timon, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you um, and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon.